It's good to be with you this morning. I'm glad you are here. I'm glad that this morning we can uh, be back in the Gospel of Mark. This is part number seven in our study of Mark's Gospel. We are entering into chapter number three. We're going to cover from verses six down through the rest of the chapter. So quite a big chunk of verses here. And we are going to uh, speak this morning, I, I hope at least, on our relationship with the kingdom of God. I think what you'll notice here right away in this chapter, in Mark chapter 3, is there's lots of talk and terms and conversations about relationship. And here this morning, I hope to bring that to light. There's a stunning verse, though, that's not in our text. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it for you. Now, we like to think of Jesus in a certain way, a, a cozy way, a cuddly way, you might say. But then there's times throughout the Gospels where Jesus says something that is opposite of what we think that he should say. And in fact, in Matthew chapter 10, in verses 34 through 36, we get one of these instances of Jesus saying something that's not quite cuddly or cozy. (laughs) Jesus says in Matthew 10, Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Here it seems like Jesus is speaking something opposite of the gospel. He's not bringing peace. He says, I'm bringing a sword. Again, it's an unexpected thing that Jesus here says. He's not bringing peace. He's bringing a sword. He's not bringing a house together. He says, he's, he says this man's foes shall be his own household. A house shall be divided. How does this fit? How does this jive with Jesus' words in the Gospels? It certainly doesn't fit the, the modern cozy narrative of Jesus being this peace-loving, huggy God. This is an abrasive Jesus. It's a cruel-sounding Jesus. It sounds merciless that he has a sword in his hand, not a peace treaty or anything of the sort. It sounds merciless that he's separating, he's dividing, he's not bringing together. I think the natural question for me when I read that passage in Matthew and also juxtapose it against what we're going to talk about this morning in Mark chapter 3 is... If Jesus is dividing, what sort of classes are he, is he dividing into? As he's dividing this household, he's separating them. What are the categories? What are the classes? How, what's, what's the rubric? How, how, what's his measure and standard for dividing people? For separating them? And how, how do I make sure that I'm in the right class? <laughs> how do I make sure I'm in the right category? I want to make sure I'm in the one that is in glory, that's going to win, that's going to be on the victor's side, so to speak. So how, if I'm being separated, if I'm being separated by this sword which Jesus wields, how do I make sure I'm in the right category? I think those are logical questions to ask. I also think those are logical questions which our text this morning answers. The passage that Pastor Nathan read is so remarkable to me. The fact that Jesus looks up and he says, Behold my mother and my brethren. Behold my family. 
This is what his family looks like. And I hope this morning we're just going to take a few moments and contrast that very subject. The contrast of Jesus' enemies versus Jesus' family. So let's look at that really quickly this morning. Look back up at Mark chapter 3 in verse 6. And here throughout the next several verses we're going to look at what Jesus' enemies are like. What Jesus' enemies are like. Mark chapter 3 verse 6. It says. And the Pharisees went forth. And straightway took counsel. With the Herodians. Against him that is Jesus. How they might destroy him. Here we're given. A very blatant picture. Of Jesus' enemies. The people that are working. And plotting against Jesus. Here they are being very conspicuous, right? They're being very um, nefarious, very dangerous. They're working in the shadows, lurking. And it says they're taking counsel together that they might find a way to destroy this one Jesus who has just recently come on the scene and already he's proving to be an annoyance. Such an annoyance that these two classes of people, the Herodians and the Pharisees, Are working together to destroy him. Now you have to remember. You have to think about the scandal of that phrase. Because the Pharisees and the Herodians were not people who were friends. They weren't uh, groups of people. Folks that would often do a lot together. They weren't going to barbecues together or anything like that. They were antagonistic to one another. They were themselves enemies. The Pharisees. Opposed all Roman rule. They were not fans of the Romans coming in and asserting themselves in their day, in their town. They were against that. They were opposed to that. The Herodians, however, were for Roman rule. They were saying, come on in, make our towns and citizens better. Let's have more Roman influence in our culture. They were advocating for Roman rule. And so so you see right away here that these two that are politically opposite are coming together here because they have found a common enemy. And his name is Jesus. (laughs) They just set aside their differences They compromise their convictions one way or the other so they can make sure they can find a plan, find a way to destroy this Jesus who's disturbing their systems of religion. This Jesus who's coming up and stirring up the people with his teachings of grace and his healings of demons. He's causing such a stir. It says, notice the word that we've pointed out often in these first couple chapters. That word, that idea, immediately, look at what it says. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel. They immediately found themselves working together, conspiring together with these Herodians, these individuals they would not want to be with otherwise. And now here they are finding a way. To be intentionally hostile towards Jesus and his followers. These are Jesus' enemies. Overtly so. As they're turning against him. And here is a very pivotal moment in the, in the gospel of Mark. In Jesus' life. It's a landmark moment in this narrative. Because now these enemies of Christ aren't just suspicious of him. And they're suspicious of his teachings or whatnot. Now they are actively and actually malicious. They're working for a way to bring about his demise. 
They're working for a way to put him to death. They want to silence Jesus. They're tired of him stirring up the people. They want to silence him for good. Let's find a way to destroy him. And do it in a way that is lawful. Such is why they are always seeking to bring him in juxtaposition with the law. Let's find a way that we can accuse him lawfully and legally and try him. Why do you think they went through the, the facade, the farce of having a trial? Which we'll get to later on at the end of Mark. When Jesus is on trial, why do you think they're doing that? So they can appear above board. <laughs> In their conspiracy against Jesus. Let's make sure that we're doing it right. <laughs> These are Jesus' enemies. They're conspiring against him. But look, jump down to verse 22. You'll see here that they also are confrontational. Look at them. Look what happens. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of devils casteth he out devils. Here, what an interesting accusation they make. These scribes and Pharisees here, they are uh, consorting with the Herodians. And now here they are uh, worried that, and they're fearful of Jesus' authority sweeping away their authority. And so they call up for some higher counsel. Like I said, it says the scribes which came down from Jerusalem. These are a little bit more prestigious scribes, a little bit more experts perhaps on the law. They're coming down from headquarters, so to speak, so they can confront this Jesus. And they confront him with a bold, you got to think of the boldness of these scribes and Pharisees, but it's also quite illogical. Basically, they're saying Jesus is casting out demons and he himself is, is demon possessed. This, this Jesus, this teacher, this miracle worker from Nazareth, he is a demoniac and he's casting out other demons in the name of Satan, in the name of Beelzebub. And notice, they're not denying Jesus' supernatural power. They don't say he can't do those things because they've seen it happen. They just know that he can't be God. They reject any idea that he's divine. He has to be satanic. He has to be working for the Beelzebub, the Lord of the flies is what that translates to. They did not understand Jesus. They did not understand this unexpected Savior who was coming and finding company with sinners and sick. And I don't think these scribes and Pharisees were looking to understand Jesus. And such is why Jesus here replies to them in very curt, very blunt ways. Notice what he says. He's thrown this accusation that he's a a worker of Satan casting out other workers of Satan. And notice what he says. He called them unto him, verse 23, and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand but hath an end. He replies in these ways that it's physically and morally, excuse me, morally illogical and impossible that Satan would be working to cast out Satan. Why would one of Satan's agencies saying work to cast out other agents of Satan? This is absurd. 
He, he's basically calling these scribes. Think about what you're saying. It doesn't make sense logically. <laughs> Why would someone working for the devil seek to cast out other devils? Such as why he's pointing to this illogical, this illogical fallacy represented in these Pharisees' charge. But notice verse 27. This, I think, is one of the most important verses in the Gospel of Mark to understand the narrative of Mark. And yes, also the scriptures itself. Notice, no man, verse 27, can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he will first bind the strong man... And then he will spoil his house. What's he saying here? It's an overlooked verse, I think. It's an often uncelebrated verse. When you think of life verses, we don't often think of Mark 3.27 as a life verse. But I would tell you that this verse is suggestive of Jesus' entire ministry here on earth. You see, he's likening the whole world to the strong man's house. He's saying here that I have entered the strong man's house. He's saying just like an invader would enter into a strong man's house. In order to prevail against that man. He would have to suppress, secure, bind the strong man first. If one is invading he doesn't look to to snoop around before he has first secured the house in which he is invading. And see, you see Jesus here. Is saying he is invading the strong man's house. You see the strong man in this verse is Satan. And the stronger man. The man who binds up the strong man. Is Jesus himself. He's the invader. And he's saying this dark world which Satan has ruled for far too long. I have come and I am going to bind up Satan. And I'm going to spoil his house by reclaiming what is mine. I am the stronger man. There's a strong man in this house and he's ruling in this day. I don't work for him. I'm not an advocate of his. I'm not one of his agents. I am the stronger man. I have come to spoil Satan's house. And you can see it right away throughout the rest of Mark's narrative. Mark is one of the uh, interesting gospel because it includes more references to exorcisms and the casting out of demons than any of the other gospels. It's pointing to the fact, again, that we've noted Jesus has ultimate authority over all of the forces of creation and nature. Yes, even over evil, demons fall down and listen to him. If you jump back up to verse Um, 11, it says, And unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. (laughs) These unclean spirits, they know who's on the scene. They know the stronger man has come. And he has come to bind up the strong man. He has come to bind up they for who they work for. This verse, verse 27, is hinting at a day when Satan will be bound forever. It's a hint of Jesus' final and ultimate triumph over the strong man. Because he himself is stronger. He himself is greater. Notice 
That Jesus' enemies not are just confrontational. Illogically so, but they nevertheless confront him here in this little scene. But jump to the scene just prior. Look at verse 20 and 21. We have an interesting little passage here which points to that Jesus' enemies are also restrictive. Look at what it says. And the multitude cometh together again so that they could not so much eat, so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him. For they said, he is beside himself. What an interesting passage. That word there for friends is actually better translated family. Jesus' own family are hailing from his hometown to seek to lay hold of him. And they're saying, he is beside himself. He's not in his right mind. No doubt aware of this hostility blossoming against Jesus. Perhaps they had heard rumors that there's those that are seeking to take Jesus' life. His own family, Jesus' own family here are attempting to restrict and hinder his ministry. Those closest to Jesus didn't understand him. Those closest to Jesus knew perhaps what was promised about him, but they didn't know what that meant. They didn't know what that entailed. They didn't grasp the fullness of that promise. And so instead of accusing him of heresy, instead of accusing this Jesus that they knew that that he might be, he must be some demoniac. Here they're just saying he's beside himself. He's a lunatic. That's really what that phrase means. It actually means his mind is displaced. We need to go get a hold of Jesus because he's out there teaching, he's preaching, and he's not in his right mind. He's not thinking properly. He is insane. His own family were making excuses for him. They were restricting him. They did not understand him. It reminds me of what John writes in John chapter 1 verse 11. Where John writes, he came unto his own and his own received him not. How here his own kindred are turning against him. Restricting him. These reactions of the Pharisees and of Jesus' own family remind me of that famous uh, Argument of Scottish preacher John Duncan. Now, John Duncan was a Scottish uh, preacher, and he had this idea, this sort of apologetic argument for the nature and deity of God. You might know it, more famously made famous by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis writes in the book Mere Christianity that either Jesus was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. It's this apologetic that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. John Duncan, many years before Lewis, wrote this. Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud, or he was himself deluded and self-deceived, or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma. It is inexorable. It is inescapable. Either, like the Pharisees, you think he's a liar... You think he's working for the enemy. He must be lying. Or like Jesus' own family here. You think he's a lunatic. You think he's insane. You think he's out of his right mind. Or he is the Lord. 
These are the options that are presented before us here. Jesus is already claiming that he is God. And if Jesus is who he says he is, we cannot be indifferent to what he says. There is no neutrality to this Jesus. You want to know why he wields a sword that divides? Because there's no neutral ground. There's no neutral ground when confronted with this unexpected Jesus. This unexpected Savior. Who comes and says, I am the Lord. He's dividing right away. What do you believe about me? Well, that's what his enemies are like. Let's jump back up to verse 7. We'll read through a couple of these passages. Because I want to show us, importantly, quickly... What Jesus' family is like. Look at verse 7. But Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea. And a great multitude from Galilee followed him. And from Judea. And from Jerusalem. And from Idumea. And from beyond Jordan. And they about Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude. When they had heard what great things he did. Came unto him. Despite... The plot against him, despite the rumors swirling around him, Jesus presses on in his ministry. He goes on doing the will of his father. And here the fame is spreading rapidly, spreading quickly. It mentions all of these locations surrounding about where Jesus is. And it's it's getting at the fact that folks from the north, the south, the east, and the west, from all over are coming to hear and see this Jesus. But notice what they're after. Look at what it says. They're there because they had heard what great things he did. They're not... Really present for Jesus' teachings. They're there for Jesus' healings. As we've seen before. Back at the uh, beginning of chapter 2. Or excuse me the end of chapter 1. But notice what Jesus is doing. Look at verse 10 and 11. He has these people coming up to him. Pressing around him. Actually look at verse 9. And notice what he does. And he spake to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude. Lest they should throng him. They're pressing around him. For he had healed many insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him as many as had plagues. And unclean spirits when they saw him fell down before him and cried saying thou art the son of God. These who are there, who are only there just to see what Jesus can do. Jesus heals them anyways. Jesus heals them anyways, despite knowing they're not really there to see who he is. They're just there to get something from him. He shows them mercy, despite knowing their very motivations for being there. He shows them incalculable mercy. He heals them. It says he healed many. What a picture. What a picture of Jesus' family. A, a, a group, a throng of undeserving people. Who were given an undeserving gift. From Jesus himself. This I think, this image of Jesus surrounded and and pressed on every side by sick and ailing people. I think it's a beautiful picture of God's kingdom. It's a beautiful picture of the church. This is what we are. 
We are people who don't deserve to be here. We are people who don't deserve to be here, but we are here anyways, and we are made whole. We are made complete, not because of anything in ourselves that is deserving of, but because Jesus makes us so. Jesus makes us whole. Jesus says it, and that is why it is. Jesus makes these plagued, unclean people clean and whole again of his own initiative, by his own volition. And here this morning, we can rejoice in the very same fact that we are made whole, not because of anything deserving in ourselves, but because Jesus has made us so. By the power of his own voice and the extent of his own merciful hand. But look at the next little section. Verses 13 through 19. Jesus' family is also moldable. Now what does that mean? Well, look quickly. Verse 13. And he goeth up into a mountain, and calleth unto him whom he would. And they came unto him, and he ordained twelve that they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach, and to have power to heal sicknesses, and to cast out devils. And Simon he surnamed Peter. And James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, he surnamed them Boagernes, which is the sons of thunder. And Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him. And they went into an house. Here Jesus has amassed a considerable following. He is healing and touching people's lives, gaining disciples and followers. And here, he withdraws from the crowd, as it says in verse 13. And he actually intentionally chooses a select few, 12 to be exact, into closer fellowship with him. I think he's separating these 12 so that he might pour himself more purposely into their lives. But as I was reading this, I was struck by the fact that he renames some of them. Did you see that? In verses 16 and 17, he renames Peter, James, and John. They were originally Simon, James, and John, and he calls them the sons of Zebedee. He calls them, excuse me, Boagernes. But look at, I think what I want you to see is this. That in Jesus renaming them, he's molding these men into who he wants them to be. Just think about James and John. He renames them. It says he surnamed them Boagernes. It literally means they're the sons of thunder. It is, is a word that harkens to a thunderstorm or to fiery zeal. Now, I think this is speaking to James and John's character. I don't think they were the sons of thunder. But Jesus is naming them that. And that these unassuming fishermen, they soon one day will set the world on fire. Through the speaking of his own name. James and John, you may be unassuming, quiet, not (laughs) zealous fishermen. But through you, you're going to turn the world upside down. You will be become the sons of thunder. You are Boagernes because I have remade you and I am surnaming you. I am molding you to live and to die for my kingdom. You are part of my family now. But I also love what he renames Simon. 
Verse 16, and Simon, he surnamed Peter. Literally, he surnamed him the rock. This this fledgling and fickle tradesman, Peter, is now made to be the founding rock upon which the gospel would go forth. The one. Here, Peter mentioned this Simon. He's one of the most significant leaders in the early church. And yet, Jesus renames him, all while fully knowing that this Peter, this one who is called a rock, would deny him. In his hour of need, he would act like anything unlike a rock. He would act unlike anything like one who is stable and steady and faithful. And yet Jesus is saying, I am going to make you a rock. Your name now is not Simon. Your name is Peter. Because I can make you into who you want. I want you to be. Not because of Peter's character. Not because of something in Peter. Not because he was deserving. But because Jesus was speaking into him. With all authority and fullness of power. And yet I think about these very men here. These men that he calls. These men that he renames. He knows what's ahead. He knows what's ahead for Peter. He knows even what's ahead for Judas. And he invites him in too. He saw all the possibilities for failure and still brought them into closeness and discipleship with him. He saw all of the potential for this to go wrongly and badly. And he says, I still want you as one of my own. You are still my family. What a tremendous truth. That Jesus brings us into his family. He invites us to be one of his own. All the while fully knowing who and what we are. Because he can make us into who he wants us to be. Jesus names us and remakes us not for what we are. But for who and what he wants us to be. One said it this way. That Jesus doesn't ask for resumes. He builds them. (laughs) I think here he's actually speaking them into existence. James and John, you don't have power and confidence. I'm renaming you Boagenes. You're going to set the world on fire. Such is what he does for us. He calls us beloved. He calls us clean and righteous and redeemed and whole again. He calls us his sons and daughters. We aren't so, but he makes us so. He speaks us into his family. This to me is what this whole passage is about. It's about bringing those who don't deserve to be there into the fold, into the family. Because God's kingdom is all about relationship. The diseased and the sick earlier in the chapter were with him. And notice verse 14. The invitation of the twelve that they should be with him. They should be in relationship with him. And here I think we find the most poignant, the most telling vignette of Jesus' relationship to the kingdom. Our relationship to Jesus' kingdom I should say in the entire scriptures. Look at what he says in verse 31. There came to them... 
There came then, excuse me, his brethren and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. Remember earlier in the chapter? His own family said, We have to go lay hold of him. Well, now they're here. They're outside the door. Jesus, we need you to come away with us. I don't think you're thinking in your right mind. Notice what he says. And he answered them saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked around about on them which sat about him and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. Here you have to see, Jesus is not rejecting our family relationships we have here on earth. He's not rejecting the idea that we have close-knit, important families. What he's demonstrating is what it means to be a part of God's family. What it means to relate to God's kingdom. Remember who he's speaking to. A fledgling group of 12 men which he has just called into being close disciples of him. And one of them was Judas himself. And he calls him a brother. Perhaps it was even larger. Perhaps it was, a, it was still the crowd of the sick and the ailing. And he looks upon their faces and he says, you are my family. How? They are made so. We are made family by faith. Look at what he says. For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my family. It's not by heritage. It's not by pedigree. It's not by prestige or any other thing. It's by faith. You want to know how to get into the kingdom? You want to know how to relate to my family? Faith is all that matters. Faith is all that counts. This is opposite of the scene just prior. If you notice that verse 28, we have this intriguing scene where Jesus talks about the sin that has no forgiveness. Look at what he says. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewithsoever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation, because they said, he hath an unclean spirit. The sin without forgiveness. This is a passage which has been the source for uncountable amounts of confusion and anxiety and unrest for an untold amount of saints within the church throughout ages. There are many, I think, who live under this constant pressure and burden so as to make sure I'm not committing this sin that doesn't have forgiveness. (laughs) Well, I want to dispel that for you this morning quickly because I want to say to you that the reality of Jesus' words are much simpler than what you might believe. Honestly, I don't think Jesus here is saying that there's some special sin which is outside the coverage of Jesus' pardon. Jesus even says that all sins shall be forgiven. 
all is not all but one little minuscule one. Not all but this one sliver of, of, of sin that this blood cannot redeem. All, I think, means all. But what cannot be redeemed is the outright and abject rejection of redemption. The outright rejection and repudiation of relationship. Faith brings you into relationship with the kingdom. It brings you into the blood-bought family of God. And here he says, the sin which has no forgiveness, unbelief. Those who go to the grave rejecting this pardon. Those who go to the grave rejecting the means of forgiveness. Those are those who have the sin which can never be forgiven. Why? Because they've rejected the pardon. That's the only unpardonable sin. That, I hope, will dispel that myth for you. Relieve you. Of the burden of living under the idea that you can commit something that Jesus cannot speak into. He can speak into any sin in the world and redeem you and reclaim you from your lostness. But what he cannot do is reclaim you once you have gone to the tomb and rejected this pardon. Rejected this invitation into his family. Such is why he contrasts this very scene with the scene that follows. With the fact that these are those, these Pharisees, these scribes. These are they, my enemies. They are rejecting my pardon. And here my family. My family are those who hold and cling to my pardon. He says it's by believing. He says those who do the will of God. This doing here is referencing that belief, that faith we must have. I'm reminded of John chapter 6 verse 28 and 29. Where Jesus is asked this question. What shall we do that we might do the work of God? And Jesus' response is here indicative of this very conversation. Jesus replies, this is the work of God. That ye believe on him who he has sent. This is my work. This is my work for you. You want to know how to get into the family? Believe in my blood that pardons you. Cling to my forgiveness. Faith here is what brings us into the family. And he's saying this is the only requirement Faith is all that matters. Faith is all that counts. This is the unwatered down, the the unadulterated truth of the gospel. Is that faith is the only rubric by which God divides and judges. When we get to the end in the final analysis, Jesus will divide with that sword which he wields. He's going to divide not into camps of people, tribes and stripes and families and backgrounds. It's going to be a division of faith and unfaith. Of those who believe and those who have disbelieved for their entire lives. And that's why he's saying there's no neutrality here. 
There's no middle ground when it comes to my family. Either you are in by faith or you are out by unfaith. Either you are accepting and believing that my words are true and that my blood pardons from all sins. Or you are out and you are on the outside and you are not part of my family because you have rejected my means of forgiveness. This is the sword that Jesus is wielding. This is the camps. These are the classes he's dividing into. A group of those who trust in his pardon and those who distrust and enter eternity unpardoned. And therefore we have to ask. Are you part of this family? Or are you not? What is your relationship to the kingdom of God? What is your relationship to this family that God is raising up by faith? Are you an enemy or are you a family? Are you in by faith or are you still out on the outside by your disbelief? Oh, I pray this morning. Do not walk out of those doors without being a part of this family. It happens in a moment. There's no grand ritual process which you have to go through. It comes down to a matter of faith. A matter of belief. Are you in his family? Are you still on the outside? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.